Open up to the book of Job, or Job, uh, chapter number one, all right? And uh, I'm back on this, uh, I think the small books like recalibrated me to try to tackle a book a week again, so I think I reset my clock with that, so I'm going to try, because I don't want to get like, I want to kind of give you just a working framework and not like a super survey, and uh, we could flesh it out in like another class at some point. But uh, you see on your handouts, and Eli has some extra ones that we have to pass them around. But really, right, in all the Bible, the book of Job is one of the most mysterious, amazing, mind-boggling, heart-wrenching, like just everybody here who's ever gone through anything can like relate to Job in some way, right? A book of suffering. So 42 chapters, 1,170 verses, 18,098 words. The author is likely Elihu, and that verse right there, 3216, seems to say that it's Elihu, one of the, the men with Job. Uh, he, he refers to himself there as the speaker when he's writing. The time period is really seven days. So it's really just a week, Uh, Just seven days of transpiring here. It's not a month. It's not five years. It's not 20 years. It's a week. Uh, A lot can happen in a week. And uh, Bishop Busher says it's around 1520 B.C. That would actually make him more of a contemporary with Jacob. Uh, But, you know, again, that date is is Usher's date, so you could take that or leave that. And the key word is trial, and I don't think that's a surprise. Uh, James 5.11 says, You have heard of the patience of Job. So Job is really known for his patience. And the Bible says in Romans, tribulation worketh patience. So we get our patience from going through things. Uh, We don't like that. That's why we often joke around, don't pray for patience. But uh, you've heard of the patience of Job. And Job had this tremendous patience because Job went through some serious things. I'm just going to step back a little bit more here. There we go. Um, Job's sufferings picture a lot of other people's sufferings. They picture the sufferings of Israel. Uh, that's that we're going to talk about that. They picture the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that. And they even, in some places, picture the sufferings of the lost in hell. You read chapter 30 especially, it really sounds like a lost man in hell, the way Job is, is crying out. So it really pictures a lot of different suffering. And the key message on your sheet there is that trials sometimes come for our learning, not always our chastisement. And that's something Job's friends missed big time. And I put friends in air quotes. So we're going to talk about that. So what is the picture of Jesus Christ? Well, the suffering servant. Because Job is the suffering servant. And he pictures Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, because Jesus Christ was not suffering for his own sins. He was suffering for our sins. The Bible says, Christ hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter chapter 3. So always remember that, that sometimes uh, trials are not because of your sin, it's because of something bigger that God's working out. Now over here, we, uh, I have written down over here, that the book of Job is the first. We enter in now into a part of the Bible which are sometimes called the wisdom books or the writings or the, some people call them the poetical books. And, and these five books really make up the heart of your Bible. And they really get at some really foundational truths which we'll talk about as we go through these books in the coming weeks, God willing. Job really shows us the suffering of God. You'll memorize this because I'll show it to you every week. Psalms is the heart of God. Proverbs is the mind of God the Father. Ecclesiastes is the mind of the Spirit. And Song of Solomon is the mind of Christ. So we're moving into like some really important stuff here, some really foundational truths here. And like all of the Bible, 
the book of Job has three applications. Historical, doctrinal, spiritual. Let's talk about the historical first. This really happened. Can you take that in? Covered in boils from head to toe, scraping yourself off for the oozing with a piece of pottery. This really happened to a godly man in the Middle East after the flood. Right? He's probably sometime after the flood. Shortly after the flood, we have this man go through this unbelievable ordeal. Sometimes when I think about my own beer that I'm crying in, I think about Job. Because that's just, it's just, it's almost impossible to fathom, but it happened. Uh, now, if you look at Job chapter 1, verse 1, the second real interpretation here is the doctrinal interpretation. And that yields some very rich things because the trials of Job picture the great tribulation for the nation of Israel. A beautiful picture of the great tribulation for the nation of Israel. Let me show you some things about why that is. Just a few little things you could probably build on this. But Job's name means persecuted. That's what his name means. It means persecuted or he that weeps or cries. Right? Somebody going through something. And uh, Job 1.1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz. Right? Job is in the land of Uz. That is Edom. E-D-O-M. That is where Israel is going to be during the Great Tribulation. That is that path of the Second Advent runs through Edom. And Israel is going to be hiding out over there. So there was a man in the land of Uz, which is Edom. That's where Israel is going to be hiding and, and roaming around during the Great Tribulation. So it's fitting that that's where Job is as he goes through this horrible ordeal. Job has 42 chapters. The Tribulation, the Great Tribulation has 42 months. Job 1.7, right there. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Please notice that in the book of Job, Satan is on the earth, roaming on the earth, like he will be during the great tribulation. Revelation 12.12 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down unto you having a short time. Revelation 12.12. 12. So there's another good parallel. So there's many more, but just to kind of whet your appetite, that it's a great picture of those future events when Israel goes through those purifying fires before Jesus Christ comes back. Now, look at verse number 20 of the first chapter, and here's something spiritual for you to take away. You say, well, I'm not an Israelite, I'm not going through the Great Tribulation. I'm not living several thousand years ago. What does this say for me today, Pat? What's a spiritual, inspirational, devotional thing I could take away? You know who Job is? Job is who all of us have to become. A man who realizes that God is all he's got. Amen. 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 Everything gets taken away. And Job realizes that God is all I have. Job 1.20. He has lost his stuff. He has lost his family. He is he's about to lose his health. I mean, he's losing everything right now. And in Job 1.20, it says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Can you take that in, please? He worshipped God after watching his kids die, his house gets smashed, his stuff gets stolen, and everything he had be taken away. He falls on his face and he worships God. You know what? That's why God points to Job as one of those three guys that are pretty amazing. Job, Noah, and Daniel. He says these three guys are pretty awesome, and that's a reason why. Job is an amazing figure of a man. You just take that in. If you lost everything tonight, physically, that you could lay your hands on or a hug, would the first response be, 
Praise God. Wouldn't be mine. I'll say amen for you. It wouldn't be mine. That's an amazing figure. It says, and he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Can you take that in? How many times when we go through something, Lord, I was trying to do right. Lord, I'm trying to do the best I can. Why is this happening? I don't see Job say that at all. Lord, it wasn't mine to begin with. It isn't mine to hold on to. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he wasn't so foolish as to point a finger at God or even raise an accusation against God. That makes me want to give an invitation, fall flat on my face if I could get up afterwards and like just pray for the next five hours. That is holy Holy ground. That's sacred ground right there. That's why God says, Hast thou considered my servant Job? That's an amazing, godly man right there. So you and I have to try to get there, but that's a, quite a place to get to, right? That's, that's a devotional thing. I think somebody said, when, when you realize that God is all you have, you have all you need. And that's kind of where Job gets. So the basic breakdown you see on your sheet, I thought of it this way. Uh, help me understand it. Uh, chapters 1 to 2, God and Satan. That's Job being tested. Chapters 3 to 37 of Job Job and his friends. That's Job getting counseled. Put that in quotes. And Job 38 to 42 is God and Job. So God and Satan, Job and his friends, and then God and Job, and that's when Job gets restored. So let's dive in now. Let's go back to Job 1.1. And let's dive in now to some Bible pictures and some important truths from the book of Job. Let's start with that first section. I'm just going to cherry pick some things out here. Uh, Let's start with Job 1.1, this section on God and Satan, which is Job being tested. Let's look at Job 1.1. Great verse. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed or avoided, ran from evil. Please notice that many attribute Job to be the oldest written book in the Bible, right? Like it's not not put in the Bible as the first book, but chronologically in terms of when it was written, it's the oldest book in the Bible. Do you notice, please, that the oldest book in the Bible deals with the oldest question in the world? In the first verse, why do the righteous suffer. And if you think I'm going to answer that tonight, I am sorry. But the book is dealing and wrestling with the oldest. That is the quintessential philosophical conundrum. Why do the righteous suffer? Think about it. Now, Job is picturing here, right, the suffering servant, right? Now, please notice that the oldest book in the Bible points to Jesus Christ's sufferings, the sufferings of God. You know, your God went through some things. The Bible says Jesus Christ learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So we see Job as always about us. Oh, why did the righteous suffer? But you ever think about it that it's God saying something about himself? That the oldest book in the Bible is him talking about a righteous man suffering? You know about someone named Jesus Christ, the righteous, who suffered in your place? 
God made that the first thing written down. It's not just a question for, for us to ponder philosophically. It's also a father's heart saying, here's where I'm starting, folks. My heart was broken. I suffered in the flesh, and my heart was broken. My son had to suffer for your sins, and he was righteous. You're not righteous. He was righteous. He was altogether lovely. There was no spot in him. When he reviled, he reviled not again, right? He was, he was perfect. And uh, wow, wow, just makes me, knocks my socks off. I'm just, I'm getting overwhelmed just thinking about it now. Hey, that reminds us right from the jump that sufferings and trials are not always God's judgment on your sin. You see that right from the beginning? Because Job's a righteous man. He points to Jesus Christ as a righteous man. And they're going through stuff, not because of their own sin, because of some much bigger picture. The book doesn't get through the first verse before it starts touching on those things. So you got to put that in the back of your head. Job's friends miss that tremendously. They're all pointing a finger at Job. What'd you do, Job? What'd you do, Job? What'd you do, Job? Where God starts it up and says, you know what? This is about something much bigger than somebody's sin. That's right at the beginning. Now look at verse number 5. Here's another nice picture at verse 5. And it was so in the days of their feasting, meaning Job's kids, were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them as kids and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Wow, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually... You know what I see here? The intercession of Job for his children pointing to the intercession of Jesus Christ Amen. for you. Amen. Say, I'm doing pretty good, God. He's like, I'm still praying for you. Because it may be you did something stupid today. It may be you're going to do something stupid tomorrow. It may be you did something stupid yesterday. Father, forgive them. Father, take care of them. I mean, the Bible says he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That's his high priestly office now. He was a prophet down here. He laid down his life, and he went up to that mountain up there, and now he's praying for us all night. He's praying for us. He'll come back as a king, but he was prophet. Now he's priest, and he's going to be king. But right now, he's an intercessor. He's a prayer warrior, and he's praying for you. You say, I think I'm doing okay, God, but the Lord sees you're six. <laughs> and he says, it may be that Pat Mashanya has done something stupid, done something foolish, Lord, cover that, Lord. Have mercy on that, Lord. Forgive him, Lord. Doesn't that just make you want to shout and say amen and thank amen. Jesus? Amen. You don't know. You want, you're going to go to work tomorrow morning. You're going to get in your car, say, Lord, protect me on the road. You're not going to know the myriad things that the devil's going to hurl at you. Your stupid mind is going to think. The temptations are going to be around the corner. And the Lord is up there just praying him down, praying him down. Pray. Man, if he wasn't praying for you, we'd all be shot. We would have been eviscerated a long time ago. But the Lord's praying for you, praying for you, praying for you. Even if you've got to go through something, He's praying for you. Verse number 6. Please notice this also. Now there was a day, ah, there's a message there, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. I want you to notice here that in verse number 6, we learn that God is the father of angels. Sons of God in the Old Testament are angels. They're not you, okay? You weren't there yet. There is no church yet. There is no body of Christ yet. Nobody's getting born again yet. Nobody knows anything about the cross yet. Nobody knows anything about the blood yet. Nobody knows anything about anything that you enjoy right now. If you go to Job 38, hold your place there. So when you see that phrase, sons of God, in the Old Testament, you know you're talking about angels. And God is the father of angels, right? That's why they're called sons. Um... God is a spirit, 
and those angels are ministering spirits. Uh, Job 38, verse number 6, Job is asking, uh, God is asking Job some questions, and he says right there in verse 6, he asks Job, um, take it from verse, yeah, I guess you have to take it from verse 7. He says, he's talking about where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You like to work to music? God was working to music. Right? The Lord had His angels singing when He was laying the foundations of the earth. Guess what? You weren't there. No Christian was there. No believer was there. Those were angels there in the beginning, beginning, when God's laying and forming the earth that we're walking on right now. He has got His angels singing, those sons of God. So when you come across Genesis chapter 6, and it talks about the sons of God cohabitating with the daughters of men, those sons of God are angels coming down and doing those things. Because in the Old Testament, they're angels. Don't believe the Schofield note. He was a good man, Schofield, but he was wrong about this. They were not the, uh, not the godly line of Seth. That's not who the sons of God were in Genesis 6. They were angels because God is the father of angels. We learn that in the book of Job. Now, let's dive into Job chapter 1 again. And Job chapter 1 verse number 6, right to the beginning of chapter 2 is what we could call Satan and the mystery of pain. Because Job's going to get through, get put through some pain And it's going to be a mystery to all these people. But we start to understand why. We see the source of all of Job's trials now. Please notice in verse number 7. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Here's a takeaway. Never forget that Satan answers to God. Can I say that again for the principalities and powers listening? Satan answers. Answers to God. I'm waiting for the camera to blow up. But Satan answers to God. Right? We get this impression that he's like these evil fleas that are just flying around somewhere. And if you get too close to them, they're going to jump on you and infect you and make you burn your sheets. No. Satan answers to God. He doesn't go one step further than God allows him. He's a dog on a leash. And sometimes the Lord lets that bark get right up in your face where you feel the spit and the heat and the saliva and it gets really scary. But never forget that Satan answers to God. Satan in that scene is in those heavenly places reporting in to God. Say, what you been doing, boy? What you been up to? I've been going up and down. Okay. Go, as carry on, right? Satan answers to God. And in verse number 8, we see the source of all this conflict. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Can you please notice that God picks a fight with the devil? You know what this is, folks? This is God pulling back the curtain and giving you a behind-the-look scene at your life. You may not understand why when you're doing the best you can, you're taking it on the chin and it seems like you're getting hard knocks. Now listen, a lot of the suffering we go through is because we're idiots. Amen. Amen. But there's times, plenty of them, when you're doing the best you can by God and somebody takes a baseball bat to your proverbial knees and you know, you're like, Lord, what's going on? This is God pulling back the curtain and saying, I'm using you, son. To, make, to, to, to teach a lesson to some principalities and powers in heavenly places. 
That's a big thing to take in, but that's how, that's how special you are. That's how amazing this whole thing is, that God is using us. Ephesians 3 says, We are unto those principalities and heavenly places meant to show the manifold wisdom of God. You understand that? Because some of those angels up there are scratching their head and wondering, is God really good? Is God really gracious? They follow Him, but they don't understand the mercy that you understand. They don't understand the kindness that you understand. They don't understand the salvation, and they're watching you. They're called watchers in the Bible. They're called watchers because they're watching you. And this is God pulling back the veil and saying, I might use you, son. I might use you, daughter, to teach these principalities and powers a lesson about my goodness and my power that could work through you. Just, just take that in a little bit. Just digest that a little bit. Verse number 9. Then, now that doesn't mean it makes it hurt any less. It just gives you like an understanding as to what might be going on. You say, why has it got to happen that way? Because I guess it wouldn't happen the other way. Because nine times out of ten, when the bank account's full and the health is kicking, God is sometimes the tenth thing on your mind, if you're lucky. He might be the thousandth thing on your mind. Just knock on a big mansion and try to witness to them about Jesus Christ and see how willing they are to kind of open the Bible and see they're a sinner. Something about this sinful, Adamic nature just doesn't want to think about God until we go into the house of mourning. Just something about us. It's our own fault. It's our own pride that it's got to work like this. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. And if you look at verse number 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? You see what Satan is right there? You get a clue. He's the accuser of the brethren. God's just praised Job and commended Job, and the devil comes in and says, yeah, but he's just doing it. He's not really loving you. He's just doing it because you're good to him. Revelation 12.10 says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Always making you feel like you're not good enough. Always making you feel like you're falling short. Guys, you've got to walk a, a careful Holy Spirit line between conviction from the Holy Spirit and shame from the enemy. When we make mistakes, you know, when we sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us, points us to the blood, it compels us to make it right, and then you get up and you go on and the Lord says, I forgot all about it. The devil wants to rub your face and stuff and just let you stew in it, and he's the master of guilt and shame because he's an accuser. Don't forget that. Verse 11. Now God tells Job, but put forth thine hand, Oh, this is Satan, sorry. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. There is the devil's modus operandi. The devil wants to get you to curse God. You know that? He's been doing that ever since the Garden of Eden. Yea, hath God said... Always getting you to complain. Always getting getting you to see the glass half empty when it's actually overflowing on the saucer, right? That's what he's always trying. How come God didn't give you that tree? How come God didn't do this? Why did God do that to you? You forgot the other 9.7 billion blessings that you had, and the devil's always trying to get you to get bitter towards God, angry towards God. Why? So you'll give up. See, the book of Job is foundational, man. There's a lot of things getting thrown in there that are important. Now go to chapter 2. Again, we're doing some low-level flying here. Job chapter 2, look at verse number 4. Here's that. the rest of that temptation. Here, look at this. Now he's, he's wrecked all his stuff, and you see how in chapter 1 Satan seems to control two things. Atmospheric elements and the lost. 
He moves in people to help to hurt Job, and he moves in the atmosphere to hurt Job. Interesting. Uh, you think about that for a little while. Job chapter 2, that prince of the power of the air. Job chapter 2, verse 4. And now they come back again. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Ah, skin for skin. Yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Interesting that he's got boils. We see boils show up in the Great Tribulation. But I want you to see here that before the cross, the devil had the power of death. God had to tell the devil, don't kill him, because he could have killed him. Hebrews chapter 2 said that he had the power of death before Jesus Christ broke that power of death. God used the devil to kill people. Right? He'd send them out. He was his little a mercenary. He was his attack dog. So he said, you go get, but you can't kill him. Right? He had to put that restriction on him. He, and he could touch his body. He could touch his body. Just remember that. He, he said, oh, the devil can't do miracles. You're out of your mind. You haven't read your Bible. He could touch his body. He touched him there. You're about to leave it there. I'll leave it there. But you want to ask me about that? But this, I've talked to Maurice LaPierre plenty of times. And he's told me some stories I won't repeat over the air. But he says he's, some things have gone on in his body when he's been doing stuff over there in the middle of which country. So don't, it's right there, man. He touched his body, covered him, and head to toe with boils. Is that just a fable? That's what really happened. That's literal. That's happened. So before the cross, the devil had the power of death. We see that illustration right there. Now let's go to chapter, um, let's go to chapter 16 for a second. Let's move into that second section, all right? Second section is Job and his friends, Job being counseled. Go to chapter 16. Now, in this section here, what you're going to really see, and I put a whole outline here, but outlining the book of Job is like trying to plot a little kid drawing on a piece of paper. It's like, it's all over the place. It's just a conversation. It's not a neat, pretty outline. This guy talks and that guy answers. This guy talks and that guy answers. But what you really get when you finish that whole section is the heated and fruitless philosophical discussion on the mystery of suffering. Nobody knows what they're talking about. They're all shooting from the hip and pulling out of their butt and just kind of firing away, and they're all trying to do different things. Now, Job's three friends, he's got three friends, right? Job's three friends picture three unclean spirits that go forth in the, in the Great Tribulation. Revelation chapter 16, the dragon, the false prophet, and the beast open their mouth, and three unclean spirits like frogs go out into the earth to deceive the world. Here they are, folks, three guys saying things that are wrong, that are incorrect information. That's an interesting little parallel. But look at Job chapter 16, and look at verse number 1. Poor Job, look at this. Job 16.1. Then Job answered. Now he's been taken on the chin from these guys, right? And then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things miserable comforters are y'all. I mean, what a, what a backhanded compliment, right? Like, you guys stink. I'm over here covered in boils. My kids are still just, we just didn't even pat the soil down on their graves. My house is a moldering mess. My wife told me to curse God and die. And all Job's friends can do is keep charging God, Job with sin as the source of his suffering. That's all they're doing is, what'd you do, Job? What'd you do, Job? What'd you do, Job? What'd you do, Job? And Job finally steps back and says, you guys are miserable comforters. You're not giving me any help at all. We'll touch on the practical side of that in a little while. But let's talk about those three friends. 
Let's go to Job chapter 4. Each of those three friends represent three different philosophies, three different perspectives that the world is going to try to use to explain this mystery of suffering, why the righteous suffer, why bad things go on in the world. Eliphaz is the first one. And if you want to know who Eliphaz represents, he represents, to me, the spiritual man. The one who's looking at dreams and visions and, you know, experiences that I've had, you know. Look at Job chapter 4. Here's a good text for that. Job chapter 4, verse 7. He tells Job, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, his kids have just died. You understand what? Can you read between the lines? Whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. You see, he's about what he sees. And in Job chapter 4, if you go to verse 13, he talks about this vision that he has and these dreams that he has. And he's all about his... You've met Eliphaz. You've met Eliphaz. Oh, I'm not saved, but I'm spiritual. Really? If you were spiritual, you'd get saved. Right? You know those people that, oh, I just feel things so deeply and I, I just, you know, I communicate with, you know, the spirit world and I, I, I talk to angels. and All these people out there that just are all into this religious mumbo-jumbo and like to dabble in all this stuff. You know what they are? They're deceived. They're wrong. They're Eliphaz. Go to Job chapter 8 right now. Let me show you the next guy. Bildad the Shuhite. He wasn't too tall because he was a shoe height, but uh, sorry. Hey, Pete, you use that in your next act, all right? I'll be here all week, all right? You say, wow, you went so far. Anyway, anyway, sorry. So Bildad, Bildad, that was not in the notes. Bildad is the worldly man. You know what Bildad is? He's the worldly man. He's the guy looking at the past, just looking at old Proverbs, the way people think, you know, just the way people do things. And that's what he's going to use to interpret what's going on with Job. Look at verse number, chapter 8, verse 2. He says, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Now watch this next line. If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression. Man, is that harsh? That is harsh, man. Those graves are newly buried. They're still fresh. Well, if your children sin, that's why they're dead. What? You should never talk to somebody like that. Never in your life. Because you're asking God to club you over the head with a baseball bat. Right? Verse number 5. If thou wouldest seek unto him betimes and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end shall greatly increase. For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days upon earth are a shadow. So he's all about the past. You know, worldly wisdom that's accumulating over time. Now let's go to Job chapter 11. And let's take a Zophar. Zophar is... The wise man. He's the one that's all about, 
reason and logic and experience and deduction, right? <laughs> Eliphaz is spiritual and Bildad is, is worldly and, and like, you know, common sense guy. And, and Zophar is just, you know, the, the logical guy, the reasonable guy. And 11.1, uh, he says, uh, Then answered Zophar the Namathite and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered and should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed. For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thy iniquity deserveth. He just lost all his stuff and his kids and his family, and you tell me that's not enough? Verse 7, Canst thou by searching... Find out God. And canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven, what canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? You could see like the, the philosophical, pseudo-intellectual kind of taint to the way he's talking, right? So there's three perspectives, like a, a spiritual person, kind of like a, a worldly person, and this wise person. They're all trying to understand what's going on with Job, and they're all wrong. They say things that are maybe true, but it's truth misapplied, which we'll get to later. Now let's go to Job 32. Finally, one guy pipes up. The young buck in the crowd pipes up named Elihu. And Elihu, he's interesting because in type, Elihu pictures the Spirit of God. Because Elihu speaks about the Spirit four times in his little speech here. See 32.8? Here's the first time. He says, but there is a Spirit in man. And the inspiration of the Almighty, only other time inspiration shows up in your Bible, Job 32, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Jump to chapter 33, he says it again, verse 4. The Spirit of God, capital S, hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. How about chapter 32, verse 18? Is that what I want? No... 32.18, I skipped. I'm sorry, 32.18. For I am full of matter. The spirit within me constraineth me. There's another spirit. And then he says in 34.14, he says, If he set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath. So we see Elihu mentions the spirit in man, the spirit within me, the spirit of God, and the spirit that God can draw back that breath of life. So Elihu's all about the spirit. So Elihu pictures the Spirit of God. That's why it makes sense that Elihu would be the author of the book. Because the Spirit of God is the author of Scripture. So it lines up in type. The type breaks down, of course. But it lines up in that regard. Now look at 32.1. So if Elihu is all about the Spirit, you know what the Spirit of God wants to expose about you? Your self-righteousness. Because that's what Elihu touches on with Job. See, Job was a good guy, but you know what happened to Job? He started getting self-righteous. Now, I don't blame Job. I don't charge Job, because if I were in Job's shoes, I would have been backslidden out the door, probably a mess five seconds after all that stuff happened. But Job is going through it. I'm not charging Job. I'm just saying the only like little smudge on Job's resume is he starts getting a little self-righteous. And in Job 32, verse 1, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. 
Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So the Spirit of God in type there through Elihu is exposing the only like little problemo with our good friend Job. There's a little bit of self-righteousness there. But really, Job's friends misapply the truth. Elihu comes the closest, but they all don't really hit it 100%. And you know how you know that they don't all hit it 100%? Go to chapter 38. And we'll jump into our last section. So when we get to chapter 38, his friends have just spent, what is that, 34 chapters, right? Or 35, 3 to 37 have been his friends going around and around and around and around. And finally, God shows up. And when God shows up, you know what he does? He rebukes all their meaningless talk. He says, what have you guys been yapping about? Look what he says right there in 38.1. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? (laughs) Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. So when God shows up, he rebukes them all and says, You guys have been flapping. Let me talk now. It's time for me to talk. I'll give you, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, right? So let's move to our last section now. God and Job. Job being restored. Now notice, please, in verse number one. Remember? Job is a picture of the Great Tribulation. We got that? Just nod your head. Amen. Thank you, Pete. That was a good nod. All right? (laughs) Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Very important that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. You might want to underline whirlwind because that whirlwind is a picture of the second coming. When you start seeing a whirlwind or a tempest in the Bible, that's usually an allusion to the second coming. I'll show you a few verses. I could have probably showed you another dozen. But go to Psalm chapter 18. Let me show you some of this. When the Lord comes back, He's coming back with a whirlwind. When He shows up at the end of the book of Job, He shows up in a whirlwind. Psalm chapter 18. Look at verse number 6. Psalm 18, 6. Doing all right? Say amen. 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 Good. I'm in the right library. This is a picture of Israel calling out to God at the end of the tribulation. Psalm 18, 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of His temple. Amen. And my crying came before Him even into His ears. I like that verse for my prayer life. But doctrinally speaking, there's going to be a nation that's going to call out to God and that cry is going to go into His temple. And verse 7, Then the earth shook. Now when you pray, there isn't an earthquake. But then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. Can you see it? And darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, and did fly, yea, he did fly upon the wings of the W-I-N-D, wind. He's coming down with some wind. Stay with me now. So when Jesus comes again, He rides upon the wind. Go to Psalm chapter 50. I'm just going to give you four. Could have given you like probably a dozen. Psalm chapter 50. Just know, when you start to see a whirlwind in the Bible, wonder, hey Lord, does this have any picture of your second coming? It might get something out of it. Psalm 50 verse 1. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken. 
and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Watch this now. Ready? Second coming out of Zion. The perfection of beauty. God hath shined. Here he comes. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. Oh, he's been quiet for a long time, but he's not going to be quiet forever. Amen? And it says, A fire shall devour before him. There comes that sword. And it shall be very tempestuous round about him. The root word of tempestuous is tempest, like a wild windstorm, like a cyclone. Right? That's when he's coming back. Go to Isaiah chapter 66. I'll give you one that's even clearer. Isaiah 66, verse number 15. Right near the end of Isaiah, which is the end of your Bible in picture. The 66th chapter points to the book of Revelation. Isaiah 66, verse 15. Ready? For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and he rebuketh and his rebuke with flames of fire one last one for just to just for feeling here jeremiah 23 just for bonus jeremiah 23 and i know i'm talking fast but i want to get this all in and it's recorded you can watch it or i mean it would be torture to watch it again but it's there jeremiah 23 look at verse number 19 one more on this kick Jeremiah 23, 19. Here's a picture of the the Lord in tribulation. Here he comes, ready? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury. Even a grievous whirlwind, it shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. When he comes again, right, the Lord is going to bruise the serpent's head. It's going to be a whirlwind. He's going to turn them upside down like a whirlwind does. You watch some of these hurricanes. Some of you like watch storm watchers, right? They watch stuff just get flipped upside down. Wait till the Lord's whirlwind comes. He's going to turn the whole thing upside down and make it right. Because right now the world is upside down. He's going to set it right side up when he comes back. Job 38. Job 38. Job 38. Here's another thing. So what happens in the book of Job when the Lord comes back? Now, from Job 38 to like 40 through 41, you know what God does? He asks him questions. It's crazy, right? God shows up and asks Job a series of questions to help remind Job that he's God. I don't answer to you. You answer to me. Now, God doesn't always pull that card because He's a gracious God and He will answer you. He loves you. But, you know, when we start getting a little full of ourselves, like, God, you owe me an explanation, the Lord shows up to just barrage Job with about, I've seen people count 77 questions, 84 questions. You might do it. Depends on where you split some of them. But there's 70 to 80 questions that Job is just like at the end of it, he has no answer for any of it. Right? It sounds like Jackie Gleason. I'm, I'm, I'm. And nothing. He's looking at Alice and going, uh, some of you got none of those references, but, you know, those of you know the honeymooners? Amen. Thank you. Amen. That's good stuff, right? Right? Amen. There you go. Um, that's it. One of these days. Uh, Job 38, verse number 4. Ready? First question. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Who hath stretched the line upon it? 
Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And that's just one of many, many questions. He's asking questions about the natural world, uh, uh, celestial phenomena. He's just asking question after question after question. And Job has no answers because God's trying to get his heart right. Like, Job, that's you. And I'm God. Did you forget that? All right. Um, Look at chapter 40, verse number 3. You know what all these questions help do? They help help Job find his perspective again. That I'm speck of dust, and you made all the oceans. And you don't want to hurt me. You've got what's best for me, and i got to remember that. i got to trust you when I cannot trace you. Amen. And in Job 40, verse 3, look what happens. Now, he's only about halfway through here, God. He's about maybe two-thirds of the way through. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. Brethren, you might look good tonight. You might think you're doing pretty good for God. If you could see Jesus Christ tonight, you'd fall flat on your face and you'd say, I repent in dust and ashes. Amen. Isaiah got a glimpse of Jesus Christ on his throne. He said, I am an unclean thing. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. If you could see how pure and holy and righteous he is, you would have the same response of Job. It wouldn't be, you know, God loves you and has a special plan for your life. That wouldn't, you wouldn't think you're great, I'm great, and everybody's great. You'd be like, woe is me if you can see how great thou art. That would be the, now, it's not meant to rub your face in it. It's just meant to get the perspective right. That's all this is about. Just get the perspective, folks. You're dust and ashes. That's what you are. And God is so merciful and gracious to a pile of dust and ashes that doubts Him every other second. And God's just asking some questions to get our perspective back. I don't answer to you, son. You answer to me. Answer. Answer. And Job has no answer. His answer is, once have I spoken, verse 5. He said, I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Right? And then God keeps coming at him. And the end of verse chapter 40, there's some great pictures. Verse 15 to 20, he speaks about behemoth. And uh, behemoth is a great beast. Right? I'm not going there, Stephen. I'm not going right? But uh, uh, the typology of this creature named Behemoth is he's a great beast, right? But he's a beast that pictures the great beast of the great tribulation. There's a beast in the tribulation, and there's a beast in the, in the book of, of Job. And then we get to chapter 41, which is probably the greatest chapter on the devil, is chapter 41. And in chapter 41 he says, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook? See that? Puts a hook in him because God's doing a little fishing, right? He's going to fish that sucker out. He's going to fish that dragon out of the sea. And he's going to, he says, can you do that? Can you hook that sucker and reel him in? I can, right? I think Isaiah 27 talks about that, right? Just hold your place. Isaiah 27. I might be wrong. I didn't write it down. But Isaiah 27, he says, uh, there it is. There it is. Isaiah 27, 1. In that day, second coming. See that little expression? In that day, second coming of Christ. Almost every time. So that's another little nugget to help you study your Bible. In that day, second coming. Whirlwind, second coming. In that day, the Lord with His sore and great and strong sword, hallelujah, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and He shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Woo! Amen, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. He says, can you do that? Can you do that? With all your rocket launchers and all your stuff? You can't do that. He says, I can do that. Right? Go back to Job chapter 41. 
So, and just to show you that Leviathan is not just a physical creature, you notice in verse 1, I want to just point something out in verse 1. He says, can you, uh, can you, can you cord up his tongue? Because you know what the Leviathan uses? Uses his mouth. He's a dragon. He's a serpent. His damage is done with his mouth. He says, can you tie up his mouth? I can tie up his mouth. I can stop his mouth. You can't stop his mouth. I can stop his mouth. Verse 34, the last verse of the chapter, just in case you were wondering what this creature was. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. We see right there, number one, right? That he's up there, something high, right? Spiritual wickedness in high places, that's what he deals with, right? Notice that he's a king. Notice that he's got children. Notice that Satan has a seed and Satan has children. Genesis 3.15, John chapter 8. Genesis, Satan has a seed and Satan has children because he's a king over all the children of pride. Pride is the condemnation of the devil. That's the domain that he seems to be the ruler of. Amen? Just reading stuff off my Bible and throwing it in here. Not in my notes, but I'm just looking at stuff in here. All right. So let's go now to Job 41, verse number 12. And in the midst of this great chapter, the Lord discloses all the aspects of the devil. You know, the devil likes to hide in the shadows. If we went out on the street today and said, do you believe in God? You might get a majority of people say yes. Do you believe in a devil? <laughs> do you believe in a great red dragon out there in the second heaven? <laughs> oh, you're crazy. You believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. You believe out there in the second heaven there's a great red dragon swimming in that sea out there? Some of you are looking at me crazy. But he's up there. He's up there. He beholdeth all high things. Spiritual wickedness in high places. I never want to be an astronaut when I grow up. I don't want to go up there because there's some stuff up there that you and I were never meant to go mess around with. God gave man dominion over the fish of the sea and the cattle and the birds. He never told us to go out there to outer space. I'm not hating on astronauts. I watched Apollo 13 too, but you know what? There's somebody up there, guys. There's something up there. And uh, before we get to heebie-jeebies, let's move on. But you know what the Lord does? He wants to reveal this guy. He wants to disclose some things. He wants to expose some things. And in Job 41, verse 12, he says three things about him. He says, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Those three things are good to know. God wants you to know about his parts, his people, his nations, his entourage. He wants you to know about his power. He wants you to know about his religion. How he keeps that spiritual hold over people. And he because the devil's got a religion. And I want you, he wants you to know about his comely proportion, those disguises that he has to relate to you with. Lord wants to expose all those things. You read your Bible, you'll start to see all those things showing up. Now let's go to Job 42. At the end of the uh, verse 1. At the end of the book of Job, after hearing and seeing the Lord. Job is going to judge himself and repent. Then, answered, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, because I have seen you, he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Please notice in verse number 5 that this is a great picture because during the Great Tribulation, Israel will see Jesus Christ and repent. Like Job sees God and repents. Zechariah 12.10 says, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. They're going to see Jesus Christ. It's hard to understand, but there's an appearance of Jesus Christ in the tribulation in the heavens, it seems. And some people look up and actually see Him. And it causes some people to repent. And now, in a practical sense, I've heard of you, He says, but now I see you. And on a practical level, you may have heard a lot of things about God. He's good, He's gracious, He's merciful. But can I tell you something? When you go through some things, then you see it for yourself. Yeah, I've heard about the grace of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, answered prayer, the long-suffering of God. But what you're in the valley, you know what you say at the end of that valley, Lord? Now I see you. Now I see you. Now I see you. Chapter 42 again. At the end of Job, like the end of the Great Tribulation, God is going to restore Job like He's going to restore Israel. Zero in on verse number 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. You see the first thing that happens there? The Lord puts an end to the devil's torment of Israel. Like God puts an end to the torment of Job. He says, that's it. Turning the captivity away. Alright? Look at verse 10. Keep going. When he prayed for his friends, also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. The Lord gives Job double. Do you know why? God gives Israel double. At the end of the tribulation, God gives the Israel double after all their trouble. Now you want to write these verses down. I'm going to just read them to you. Deuteronomy 21 verse 17 is a good cross-reference for the double. Because in Deuteronomy 21 17, the Lord's talking about a guy that has two wives. One hated and one beloved. He says, you know what? you got to go back and bless that one that's hated. And he says this in Deuteronomy 21 17. He says, that guy shall acknowledge the son of the hated... For the firstborn, by giving him a double portion of all that he hath. For he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. Now Israel has been like that one that was set aside, hated in a sense. But God says, you know what? You can't totally put her away. you got to restore her and give her double. Because that was the beginning, right? Israel was God's, Jehovah God's firstborn. And when God reconciles her, you know what he does when he reconciles with his wife? He gives her double. Gives her double, right? Go to, uh, don't go anywhere. Write down Isaiah 61, verse 7. God says this in Isaiah 61, verse 7. He says this to his people Israel. He says, For your shame, ye shall have double. And for confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, got it? They shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. Oh, for all Israel's gone through, the Lord's going to give them double. That's going to be an amazing day. The Bible says the casting aside of them was riches to you Gentiles. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Oh, what a day that'll be when, when Israel is restored. Which brings us to verse 11 Go back in Job uh, 42. Because the last thing I want to say before I give you some big ideas and close it out is there's a resurrection in the end of the book of Job. Like there's a resurrection at the end of the tribulation. Look at this with me. 11. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning 
For he had 14,000 sheep, double, 6,000 camels, double, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters, but they were dead. I don't see Job begatting any more children. They just showed up again. There was a resurrection, folks. The sons and daughters he lost in the beginning look like they come back at the end because at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be some life from the dead. There's going to be a resurrection. Now go to Job 16. And let me just close here. Let me hurry with me now. Let me give you a few big ideas from the book of Job. Some things to go home on. Again, that was just a little walk through the book of Job. Job chapter 16. Here's a practical one. Can I give you a practical one? We're talking about dealing with people on Saturday mornings. Job 16, verse 4. Job is speaking to his friends. He says, I also could speak as ye do, if your soul or my soul stead. I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. You know, shaking my head, SMH. That's what they're doing. They're shaking their head at him. What'd you do, Job? What'd you do? Mm-mm-mm. Verse number five. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the moving of my lips should assuage or relieve your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not assuaged, and though I forbear, what am I eased? Here's a big practical takeaway. If you get nothing else out of the book of Job, get this, Christian. If you're going to open your mouth with people who are going through th- things, don't be a miserable comforter. Don't be one of Job's comforters. Just weep with them that weep. Just be a shoulder to cry on. Give them some comfort. Give them strength. Don't try to dissect. Don't try to analyze. Don't try to figure out what they might have done wrong. You're going to be wrong. And you're going to hurt them more than they're already hurting. Just be a shoulder to cry. Now, if somebody does something dumb and slams his finger with a hammer and goes, I don't know why my thumb is hurting, because you slammed your finger with a hammer. But if somebody's dealing with trials and problems, you don't know their heart. You're not God. So stop pretending, okay? We'll all be better off if you stop pretending and just be a gracious, long-suffering, comforting friend to them and let God work out what He's got to work out. That's a great practical takeaway. Amen, Brother Pat. Good, Brother Pat. Yeah, I agree with you too. Right, that's just a good takeaway. It hurts a little to turn around, so I'm not going to turn around. Good. So first big takeaway is don't be a miserable comforter. Don't be a, don't be a Job's kind of friends. They're the worst kind of friends. Right, trying to figure stuff out and analyze it. Well, it must be because you know those whispers. It must be because just stop all that stuff. You know why I'm afraid of that stuff? Because God might put the pressure on you. He might put a little squeeze on you to see how you like it and how people treat you when you got the squeeze on. When everybody's got the squeeze on, everybody's looking, and you all know why the squeeze is on. You know why. You figured it out. You got it because you're smarter than God. You know why that person's going through that valley. You don't know. You don't, Job doesn't even know. None of these guys know. God knows. So go to God for them and be that shoulder to cry on and be a blessing. Uh, Job chapter 2, verse 4. Here's another big takeaway. Can I say this to you? Job 2, 4. Second big takeaway. The devil knows your weak points. Skin for skin. All that a man hath will he give for his life. 
the devil knows just what buttons to push. He's been studying man for thousands of years, and though he can't read your mind, he knows human behavior very well. You know what he knew a few years ago? I just gotta let a little respiratory virus into the world and watch how people will sell out their liberty, sell out their family, sell out their churches. There were pastors getting dragged to prison for just trying to meet with six people in a home. Why? Because the devil knew skin for skin, all that a man hath will he give for his life. He turned us into snitches, wackadoos, commies. He turned us into all kinds of people. Because, And I know it was real and things had to happen, but the ramifications are going to be a long time coming. And the devil do just what button to press. Execute order 19. And he pressed that button and the world went crazy. 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 And there was some, you know, there needed to be some crazy. I get that. But he turned some people's minds upside down. And I'm not hating on it, but he turned some people's minds upside down. And, and, and anything, he knows what button to press, right? Did you ever think you'd be so willing to give up your liberties and your rights and all that stuff that people gave up without a moment's thought that churches could get closed? Oh, he churches could get closed down. People could get, you know, locked up. Canadian pastors dragged into prison for wanting to have church with 10 people in his house? Like he was you know, doing some dastardly deed, he knew just what button to press. All that a man hath will give for his life. You ever saw people run after toilet paper like they ran after toilet paper in March 2020? You you thought that toilet paper was made of gold. All that a man hath will give for his life. All that a man... Job 23.10. Speaking of gold, I don't want to, you know, mix up my personal feelings in there, but there's a lot of truth in that. The devil just knows what button to press. I thought that was a good illustration. Job 23.10. How about this? How about this? There is a reason for your suffering, even if God never tells you. Job 23.10, Job says, But he knoweth the way that I take. You may not. You may not know the next five seconds of your life. You don't know your next breath. You don't next. You know. You don't know what's going to happen when you walk out that door. You don't know what's going to happen when you stand up. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He knew there was a reason, even if God never told him. You realize that this book is forty-two chapters long, and Job never got an explanation for all his suffering. God never told him, and he was a righteous man. God could commend him. And the Lord lets you see the bigger picture through Job. You understand that? God put Job in the Bible so you could see the bigger picture. So you could see what's going on behind the scenes. Go to 1 Peter 1. i got three stops left. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. Job said, When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 1 Peter 1, 6. Ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, it's only for a season, though now for a season, if need be, if need be, it's got to be this way, God, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The Lord may let you go through something to try your faith. You know, gold doesn't burn. Gold melts, but gold doesn't burn. It just melts to be shaped 
into what it has to be made into. And your faith, it's there, and God may have to shape it a little bit, but uh, God knows what He's doing. How about Romans chapter 8? One more on that, Romans chapter 8. The heat purifies that gold. The heat cleanses that gold. The heat makes that gold shapeable, but gold is not going to burn. It's not going to evaporate away. It's just going to melt down. It's never going to lose its shine or its color. It doesn't darken in the fire. It just melts so that it can be purified and shaped into something else, something in the Master's hand. Romans 8, verse 17, the Bible says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon, I count it, I calculate it, I figure that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You know what you and I need to do? As hard as it is by the grace of God, we need to reckon. We need to reckon that glory. We need to kind of count it, calculate it, remember. And if we took all the suffering we went through in our life and put it on a scale, it wouldn't move the scale an inch, a millimeter, compared to the glory that awaits us. All the hardship, all the trials, all the tears, all the woe, all the sorrow, all the this and all the stuff that makes you want to just go home already. If God put that all on one side of the scale and the glory that awaits you on the other side of the scale, all that glory wouldn't tip or outweigh that. All that suffering wouldn't outweigh the glory a millimeter. you got to count that, reckon that. And you know what the last thing I want to say? If you go back to Job 1, can I say this to you? Your suffering is not for you. That's, the, that's, that's a takeaway. Your suffering is not for you. You understand, folks, that God let Job, a man, go through tribulation. Why? To comfort you in your tribulation. Job is in the Bible so you can look to him and go, all right, God, you must have a purpose even if I don't see it. And the Bible says that He comforted us in our tribulation that we might be able to console and comfort others when they're in their tribulation. So you might go through something not for you. Job went through something not because of his sin so that people several thousand years later could look back and get some kind of consolation that God, even though I don't understand, you're working something out bigger for my, glory, my good and your glory. And finally, Job 1.8 and Job 2.3. We could look at either one of those verses. Here's my last challenge to you and then we'll pray. This really bothers me, this question. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Pat? Hast thou considered my servant Job? Could the Lord ask that question of you? That blows me away. Could God look, it over, look over at old Splitfoot and say, Have you seen Pete? Have you seen Deb? Have you seen Chris? All of your names, plug them all in, right? Could he do that for you? There's nobody like him. Job 2.4, he says, uh, Job 2.3, uh, rather, he says, Hey, he says, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth his integrity? Man, you threw a lot at him, Lucifer. Although thou movest me against him to destroy him without a cause, but he's still there. Because you know what he wants you to do, folks? The devil wants you to quit. Plain and simple. He can't get your soul, but he just wants you to quit. And the Lord's looking down and saying, could I point to you and say, I'm going to use you 
to teach the devil a lesson and maybe comfort another saint. Could that be you? Could God say, hast thou considered my servant? Fill in the blank. Would to God we would have a little of that in us that we wouldn't want to quit on God so easily when things get tough because Jesus never quit on us when the cross got rough. Amen. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you tonight.